Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As you listen to this, your American friends are probably still recovering from Thanksgiving. I'm definitely recovering from cooking a Friendsgiving meal, helping cook a Thanksgiving meal, eating the Thanksgiving meal, eating the leftovers of the Thanksgiving meal, and then mentally preparing for more holiday meals. There's the Hanukkah meals that are coming up this Monday, the work holiday parties, the Christmas meals, the Boxing Day leftovers, the Kwanzaa meals for all who celebrate, the New Year's dinners, and then there's Orthodox Christmas, which is on January 6th. And honestly, I don't know if we're going to make it. This is FT Weekend, the podcast. I'm Lila Raptopoulos, and tis the season for food and drink. FT Magazine has devoted, as is annual tradition, its whole issue this week to it. You'll find recipes, a guide to sparkling wines, travel writing about food, and a lot more. And if you're like me and have an active mind, reading about holiday food can bring up all sorts of questions. Like, why do we cook and eat what we cook and eat? What does it say about us? We've taken this theme of food and drinks and run with it. And it comes with the side of British soul searching. It's going to be fun. Here we go. What do you think of when you think of British food? Whatever came into your head, it was probably strong and heavy. Bubbles and squeak, mushy peas, Yorkshire pudding, bangers and mash. I mean, come on, Marmite? Or how about this? It's a beautiful bloom on them, the, the, the colour of them. They're beautiful, beautiful wheels. Oh, I love the creatures. You know, as I say, I've been, been chopping them up for years. <laughs> years and years. That's Peter Hack of the noted eel and pie house in East London. He's holding a live eel and stroking its underbelly. This is one of the oldest pie shops in England. Peter's family has been cooking and serving up eels for four generations. And they're quite, quite strong creatures and they're, they're you know, I, I love the eel. I mean, they're a beautiful creature, but they're so expensive now, so expensive, whereby the eels were a poor man's food back in Victorian time. Peter's Eel and Pie Shop is likely the only pie shop left that keeps its own live eels. European eels are an endangered species these days. Eel with pie and mash used to be a staple of the working class, but it's declining in popularity which just goes to show how much the British palate is changing. So how would we define British modern cuisine now? How is it different? There was one person to go to with this question, and it's Tim Hayward. He's the FT's longtime food critic. He's an extremely well-respected, popular British food writer. And he just wrote a piece about how British food, which was long a source of national shame, has become exhilarating. It's funny, I I lived in London for a few years, and... When I was going, everyone sort of made the same joke, like, oh, well, like, good luck with their food. Like, it was original. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and, and I think that's where the thrust of the piece goes, because yes. until we stop believing that in ourselves, we don't get anywhere. And so British cuisine starts when we stop thinking that way. I love Tim's writing. His restaurant reviews are chatty and descriptive and very visual. You feel like you're sitting next to him. 
But this piece he wrote for the FT Weekend's magazine recent cover on British cuisine, it was different. It was very serious. It was sort of an ode to modern British cuisine, like a treatise. And it was fascinating. Tim was tired of British people succumbing to what he calls the culinary cringe, of feeling the need to apologize for its food and its culture. He argued that Brits should celebrate their culinary culture as an actual culture, not the absence of one, and that modern British restaurants are really good and really inventive, and they should be proud of them. The response was unheard of. Readers got really mad. It so reflects the Brits and their recent history. And the response online has been absolutely astonishing. Outrageous. <laughs> I don't know. I could, I, could, I could write about animal cruelty or something <laughs> you know, on, in, a, in a positive way, and I wouldn't get that much flame. Right. And, and the people who are most angry about this, they are English people, educated English people of, of, of definitely of a, of a certain class. So to restate, Tim wrote an article praising British food, at least its contemporary incarnation, and his readers firmly rejected it. Here are a choice few of the 378 comments left below his story. This could only have been written by a deluded Englishman whose standards will never be very high given the mediocrity of the country's culinary heritage. The British eater hollows out any cuisine, robbing half the world for spices only to be afraid of tasting them. This article, by the usually very readable and well-informed Tim Hayward, is like the long-winded prelude to a joke with the punchline missing. Eating at the table of your average British family is a death sentence. Modern British cuisine's most salient characteristic is organic mayonnaise squiggled artfully on a plate of anything that is fried. People are furious at the idea that England might have a, a, a sort of culture of its own and that it might be defensible and it might stand up against other peoples. I think the cultural cringe is very, very deeply held. So there's British food like scotch eggs, and then there's British food like chicken tikka masala. And to Tim, those both make up an outdated definition of British cuisine. People say that our national dish is a curry. It's curry. Called uh, chicken tikka masala, mm-hmm. which of course... Not only was that invented uh, in the sort of 1950s by a food company, but it doesn't exist in India. Yeah. In fact, curry doesn't exist in India. In fact, the Indian staff of British imperialists made food that they felt looked like the kind of food that they want, the Westerners wanted to eat using local ingredients. <laughs> so they had chunks of meat and gravy sort of sauce that they poured over things. They didn't have spuds, so they had rice instead. When Tim talks about modern British cuisine, he means something different. Not curry, not pie and mash or the stuff you find in a local pub. He's talking about coming into a new era entirely. And he's talking about fine dining. It's funny, anytime you talk with any, in any kind of depth about food writing, you do have to make this disclaimer, which is, I'm writing about how rich people spend their discretionary income mm. on eating. That's pretty narrow. For a long time, going out for a nice fine dining meal in England was going out for, well, French or Italian, often with British chefs doing French or Italian. But recently, Britain seems to have gotten over its envy of the continent, at least in a culinary sense. Its cuisine has evolved into something more its own. I think of modern British cuisine a bit like new American cuisine. It takes joy in the local and the seasonal. It takes notes from other cultures, but it doesn't just try to replicate them. What are some examples of great modern British dishes? Gosh, I I was at a a new modern British restaurant last night. Mm -hmm. And there was a stew 
made of squid and mussels mm. and artichokes with a, I guess I'd call it an aioli if I was using somebody else's language for it, which is like a, <laughs> a, very, a very, very garlicky mayonnaise kind of emulsion sauce. You know, neither of them were sort of part of the grand canon of French, Italian, etc. They were local ingredients and they were cooked in a way that took inspiration from everything from you know, modernist cuisine uh, through to Japanese. Those to me would be two absolutely classic dishes. Modern British cuisine is Britain's most recent history. Post-wars, post-rationing, post-imperialism. To Tim, this is a new and exciting renaissance where anything is possible. One example that Tim especially likes is that British chefs are now doing more curing and foraging and fishing. They're taking inspiration from their Nordic neighbors. We're a Northern European country, and therefore, when we do something with squid and mussels, it's because it comes from our seas and doesn't have to come from Mediterranean and be a buoy base. The best modern British food also isn't trying to outdo itself. I think at some point we were going down a route of, I'm going to be very rude and say it's a masculine pissing contest, <laughs> around the notion of special ingredients and tall food and highly wrought and very arty 24-course tasting mm-hmm. menus and that kind of thing. I think what then happened, which was COVID, yeah. uh, has gone back on that and forced us to rethink some of the excesses of that. Personally, I think that's a great thing. <laughs> if I never had to do another tasting menu, I'd be a happier, happier man. Why? It's just too... It's too. It's an idiotic idea. <laughs> I was fortunate enough to benefit from an art college education. Yeah. When you see the 14-course tasting menu, you look at it and you think, my God, this is first week of first term at art college <laughs> in terms of any kind of intellectual or emotional expression. Uh, and yet it's being feted like the most important artwork ever, and it just isn't. <laughs> uh, you know, it can't stand up to that. What it can stand up to is, here is some beautiful lamb, um, and I'm going to cook it in such a way that you'll remember this for the rest of your life. Mm. Um, and that doesn't involve cutting it into small squares uh, or reducing it to a foam. <laughs> um, you know, that, that involves doing something that's around skill and love and the execution of those two things. As you've been putting your thoughts together on this idea of modern British cuisine... Does it change your understanding of Britishness? Does it change your understanding of your identity? I think the answer everybody probably wanted about 20 years ago was that if we get any good at this, then we'll have lovely little restaurant tables in the town square and, and check tablecloths and we'll be, we'll be like our brothers and sisters over the water. You know, we'll, have a, we'll have a much more agreeable and pleasant relationship with mm. food. I think what's happened globally is a globalization of food, a globalization of interest in food. And I think that plays out on many different levels, which is you'll see the golden arches in every town square as opposed to an adorable little bistro. Mm. And at the same time, the recreational level of food for the middle classes is more global and more interconnected. Yeah, I think what identifies us now as great cooks is when we don't allow ourselves to cringe in the direction of France and Italy. We basically say, no, we are creative, we're absorbing an enormous amount of material from all over the place. Mm. Now the internet facilitates that process. We do have a kind of a global recipe book to play with. And it's how we respond to that is what British cooking is about for me. But if you go off the comments on Tim's piece, not everyone is seeing what he's seeing. This great new revolution of British food, this exciting chance. And he worries that British diners may be their own worst enemy. And I sometimes in the, you know, in the, the, the five o'clock in the morning when you wake up in a cold sweat, you think to yourself, my God, you know, what if actually we haven't caught up with the rest of Europe? Because we really are terribly uptight Brits and we're totally hopeless. What if this whole damn thing has just been some kind of sort of hula hoop trend? 
<laughs> it's perfectly feasible. <laughs> I mean, Tim, I think you should write that piece about how tasting menus are art school 101. I mean, that is a, that is a savage. <laughs> that is a savage opinion. I will never eat in this town again. If you, if, no, that, that is a very good way to get somebody peeing in your soup, I think. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, well, Tim, thank you so much for being on the show. This was really a delight. Thank you. I'm still not over how mad Tim's readers were about his praise of new British cuisine. If you read the comments, they really loved hating their boiled vegetables and fish fingers, as if Tim was taking that away from them. It's like it's part of their identity that their food isn't haute cuisine. It's kind of stodgy food, but it's their stodgy food. This love-hate thing, I needed someone to parse it for me. And that's what brought us to the eel shop in the first place, the one from the top of the episode. I asked the London-based members of my team, what is the most British food place you could go? And then I sent them there and waited for answers back in New York. Mm. We present to you stewed eel with pie and mash. Actually, not bad. It tastes a bit like a bit more fatty cod, maybe. It's like kind of got like a slightly glutinous coat. But yeah, the middle is definitely fish. That's Lulu Smith, our producer. She and our other producer, Josh Gabbert-Doyen, they took a trip to the noted Eel and Pie House in East London, one of the oldest pie shops in England, and they're here to talk about it. Hi, Lulu. Hi, Josh. Hi. Hello. So, okay, first of all, what is pie and mash, and how does Eel, <laughs> how in, in, in anyone's name does Eel fit into this? Okay, so the pie, small, rectangular, puff pastry, and they have mincemeat uh, filled in there, and they're kind of piled on top of mashed potatoes. It's served with something called liquor, which isn't alcoholic, but is actually kind of parsley sauce. There's not much kind of going on in terms of taste. Uh, and then on the <laughs> side, maybe you'll have like a little bowl, and that will have some eel. Two types of eel generally served at these kind of places. Stewed, which is hot, or mm-hmm. jellied, which is cold. Ooh. Did you like it? I mean, it, it, I think I basically had quite low expectations going in and I was pleasantly surprised by the fact that it wasn't a really like strong, obnoxious flavor. Mm-hmm. You, you I don't know what you felt. Yeah, you seemed pleasantly surprised by the one that was like a bit warmer. The mm, jelly eel yeah. was like, I think, quite difficult. Okay, so let's go to this eel shop. Bring me with you. It was very retro, and there was kind of a steady trickle of customers coming in. It's very much a lunch food also, which feels quite retro. Mm -hmm. Their main times of opening are 11 till 2 p.m. So it's the kind of thing that people eat every day, same time. They've been eating it since they were kids. I've mashed for 74 years. Oh, my God. I'm 85 now. Wow. And I've I've come here... It's the best pie mash I can go anywhere. This is the best. And what makes it so good? I don't know. I don't know. It's just the best. So that's just a phrase that we kept hearing over and over again from customers. And there was something sort of refreshing about the way that people shrugged it off. There doesn't need to be yeah. a justification for it. You just, you just love it and you don't know why and that's the point. Yeah. And I think that's why commenters got so riled up in, in Tim's piece because this food is just part of who they are. Before they had the shops, they used to have pie sellers walking around the streets. They'd make the pies indoors and then they'd have a tray of pies, walk around the streets of East London and sell the pies. And then someone had this idea of, well, if we can sell them in the street, maybe we can have customers come in and eat and in, which really means it's one of the first fast foods of any kind, pie mash. 
That's Peter, who you just heard there, the owner of the noted eel and pie shop. Peter is fourth generation eel and pie seller. I mean, when Peter talks about the history, he goes all the way back to the Victorian era because they've got this direct link to history. One thing I found really interesting was that back in the 1970s, they'd actually been forced to move from Bow, which is sort of the heart of Cockney culture, very East London. They'd been forced to move further out, kind of deeper into East London to Leytonstone. This is way before we think of gentrification happening in East London in the 1970s. Like, this is very early. And this food has these very deep working class roots. And for decades, it's been at risk of getting pushed out. So they've, yeah, they've had to adapt. Mm. And I, th- I think it makes sense that there's there's a protectiveness about this kind of food because they have been pushed out. The point is that this isn't all cuisine and there's pride in the fact that it's just very good comfort food. It's stodgy, it's pragmatic, it gets the job done and it doesn't sort of need to make a fuss. The thing with British cuisine, it's almost bland. You know, any other cuisine, they throw spices in there. It's a lot richer foreign foods compared to British. But British cuisine is fairly bland. You know, you've got your steak and chips, your fish and chips, your pie and mash. It's not got that zest that other foods have got. British don't tend to experiment very well with food. It's never too rich, and I think it's palatable for that reason. And it's the sort of thing you can eat every day almost. Lulu and Josh, thank you for going to a pie shop. Thank you for tasting those eels. It did not sound like you enjoyed the eels. And I really appreciate it on behalf of all of our listeners. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, after that trip to the eel shop, do you also need a strong drink? We've got something to lift the mood and put you in the holiday spirit. We are ending this episode with a cocktail. And we've gone to a bartender who's using drinks to revisit cultural history and identity, too. Her name is Shannon Mustafer. Hi! <laughs> Do you want us to take our shoes off? It's no one, yeah. I'm saying there's new rats in the outfit. Mustafer is a bartender in Brooklyn, and she's best known for her recipe book, Tiki, Modern Tropical Cocktails. She's a big deal. This July, she was named by Drinks International as one of the 100 top influential figures in the bar industry around the world. That was the marketing team behind the tequila is going to send you images of the cocktail in the event you want to use it in any of your promo. Boom. Tiki is also the first cocktail book to be published by an African-American bartender in more than 100 years. As far as Mustafer or anyone else can tell, the last black bartender in America who published a recipe book was Tom Bullock in 1917. Mustafer, along with some others in the food world, is looking to return major figures of color, like Bullock, to their proper place in history. It's great if you like to drink, but it's even better if you're like, wait, what'd you make this with? Mm. Oh, can I see the bottle? Oh, I want to taste it. Oh, wow. And so if someone says, can I see the bottle, then they also say, oh, where does it come from? And then they say, oh, what's the history of that? And then suddenly they're in this story with you. The cocktail is a gateway drug. Yeah. <laughs> hey, kids, want some candy? <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's what I found. Yeah. Tom Bullock's book was one of the first, if not the first, to mention the Gimlet, a popular gin and lime juice cocktail. Another name you may not have heard of is Nathan Nearest Green, who was enslaved in Tennessee. He invented the recipe for Jack Daniels, though the whiskey isn't named after him. It's named after a white guy who worked at the same distillery. So, the cocktail Mustafa recommends for a holiday party is called El Diablo. It's a tequila cocktail that combines hibiscus syrup, lemon, and ginger beer. Mustafa made me a version at her home in Brooklyn. 
what I like to do with my homemade sorrels, I use like some fresh cinnamon sticks. And this, this is, is a very this is a bag of the longest cinnamon sticks I have ever seen. Oh man! Your living so room long. might have a bar cart. Hers has a full bar. The bar is the central feature. She has shelves full of spirits and tiki mugs that she's been gifted from around the world. This is from Tiki Oasis. It's like one of your kind of trippier types of mugs. And a center island that she stands behind to make us drinks. El Diablo is a play on sorrel, which is a non-alcoholic hibiscus drink that you can find in households across the Caribbean. Mustafer has an easy recipe to make your own hibiscus-infused simple syrup. You can buy dried hibiscus flowers at Caribbean food shops or local herb or spice shops. And as you're making it, if you want it to feel wintry, you can add cloves and cinnamon. If that's all too much, just buy hibiscus liquor at a nice liquor store. What I love about this is that it has all those things that work um, in summer as well as in the holidays, right? Yeah. So, you know, you got the lightness and brightness of tequila and the floral elements that come from the syrup. And then you have the ginger, which is easy to drink all year round. Mm -hmm. But then if you go a little heavier on hibiscus, or even if you're using a nail tequila, then you have a more kind of savory drink if you want a cold weather beverage. Yeah. But I, I contend that you can have it at any time of year. So let's get to it. Mustafer hand squeezes her limes right into the tin or the cocktail shaker. Now, a couple reasons for this. Now, if you're entertaining, you're probably going to squeeze your stuff beforehand because this is rather laborious. But when you squeeze directly into tin, you get the benefit of the oils from the citrus that go into the drink. And so that adds more aroma. She then adds the hibiscus syrup. General rule of cocktail building is you start with the sweet and sour. So let's just say you overpour or it's off balance. You want to figure that out before you get the spirit in there. Then comes the ginger beer, which in our case exploded right when she opened it. <laughs> oh, no. ah. That's fresh ginger beer. Yeah. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. Sure. Okay, here's some more tequila. Okay, <laughs> see ya. Finally, there's the tequila. All right, so okay. the next step is I'm going to add uh, two ounces of the tequila dragonis, Blanco. Mm -hmm. Now, this um, is designed to fit that need of being both sippable neat as well as cocktail diverse. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I figured out maybe five years ago that that's like what really turns me on with the spirit. If it's like really bland by itself, I'm like, mm. The drink is tart and refreshing. It's a beautiful bright red, so very festive. It's really good. It isn't a hot toddy, but does it have to be? The role of a holiday ritual isn't to recreate a Christmas carol. It's to help us connect around something, to show up for each other, to have fun. And that's true of holiday cocktails, too. You can go tropical if you want. You can drink tequila. You can not drink and eat a bunch of pies. The point is the pleasure of being together. I've put this whole recipe in the show notes. And the piece of advice that stuck with me most is that you can really make any spirit wintry if you go in with an open mind. So back to El Diablo. And add a few cubes of ice. Okay, so I say this is the easy part, but I see a lot of fails here. So we're gonna emphasize how important this is. We have the lemon juice, the tequila, the hibiscus sorrel. Put that in your tin with ice, cover the top, and don't go light on the shake. I hate it when I see this. <laughs> it's a, a limp, <laughs> I would call it a limp handshake. If I see this in a bar, I'm like, oh no. Oh man. 
Shannon, thank you so much for this. This has been oh, really fun. My pleasure. That's it for this week. You've been listening to FT Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. This week is the magazine's food and drink special, as I said, and it's full of incredible pieces if you're now also hungry and thirsty. We've got a column on champagne and fizz by our incredible wine columnist, Jancis Robinson. We have a piece on chestnuts. We have citrus recipes. There's a piece on what's cool for cocktail hour. I've put it all in the show notes for further research. Also, tis the season of end-of-year roundups, so keep an eye on FT.com for some of the best. I mentioned last week our Books of the Year roundup, but there's more coming, like our massive gift guide and Women of the Year and Person of the Year and Words of the Year. If you want to explore all of this, I have a few special discounts for you for a digital subscription. There's a $1 trial for a month. There's 50% off for a year. You can find them all at FT.com slash weekendpodcast and in the show notes, which is always full of links to everything mentioned. I really love hearing from you and hearing your thoughts on the show and what you're thinking about. It sparks ideas for us and we love it. So do keep in touch and say hi. You can email me at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. We're on Twitter at ftweekendpod and I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Lila Rapp. I'll put some behind-the-scenes photos from the episode on Instagram, as I always do. You'll get Shannon Mustafer with her drink and the recipe. You'll get some of the meanest comments on Tim's piece, that sort of thing. Please leave us a review or share the show with your friends. This really is the best way you can show your support, and we really appreciate everyone who has. I'm Lila Raptopoulos, and this is my team. Katya Kumkova is our senior producer. Lulu Smith and Josh Gabbert-Doyen are our assistant producers, with additional help from George Drake Jr. Breen Turner is our sound engineer, with original music by Metaphor Music. Cheryl Brumley and Manuela Saragossa are our executive producers, and we have editorial direction from Renee Kaplan. We'll find each other again next week.